I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the social index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today I'm talking to Phil Clement, global CMO of Aon. Aon is the leading global provider of risk management, insurance and reinsurance brokerage services, and human resource solutions. Today on the show, we talk about his 12 years at Aon, how other CMOs can potentially extend their tenure, or whether they should be thinking about tenure at all, how Aon became such a global brand, how they deployed the use of sports marketing, and the success that they've seen there with Manchester United sponsorships. And there's a healthy dose of fluidity throughout the conversation in terms of how you need to allow local jazz to occur for your branding efforts on a global scale to an ensemble team approach of solving big, hairy initiatives with inside of a large global organization. Well, Phil, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. Um, you know, you and I met probably, I, I can't remember, my memory so fuzzy, but 13, 14 years ago when you were consulting to a company that I worked for at the time, and, and now you're in your 12th year at Aon. How did that happen? Yeah, well, you know, it, it, it was pretty straightforward, actually, Alan. Um, I, you know, I think at the time you and I met, uh, you were working at one of the great Chicago companies. It was a company called uh, Bell and & Howell, and uh, it's a company I really loved. I mean, I think it 
it was one of the first multimedia companies and what a great and 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 fascinating engagement right to be involved in kind of their I think that was their 17th life, right? And, you know, companies kind of uh, come and go, and uh, these guys were uh, really breathing new life into the firm again. And, uh, you know, that was the great part of consulting. Uh, you worked on a lot of different challenges and a lot of different areas. And, you know, the other nice thing about consulting was you had to have immediate impact. Uh, generally speaking, you know, if you didn't really bring some value in the first couple months, uh, your your engagement was going to be over. And so I had a client, which was Aon, and you know, really exciting place as well. Um, there was an executive there named Greg Case who was running the show, and he was really responsive to the advice that we were giving him, and very much uh, enjoyed uh, working with him. And at one point. Uh, we did a little conversation where I was telling him what he needed was a CMO, and uh, I didn't realize at the time he thought I should be that in that role. And you know, long story short, I ended up uh, doing something that I thought I was going to do for two years, and now it's t- twelve years later. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you're you're really blowing through the ten year marks for CMOs, so congrats on that. Uh, um, no, but thank what, you. You're, you're welcome. What can you? What do you think? You can offer other CMOs that are looking to extend their shelf life. Sure, I mean, you know, I think that we we talk about that number quite often of twenty three months, which appears to be about the tenure of a of a CMO. And I think that changing uh, jobs and things of that nature can feel pretty traumatic, and so it's one of those things that we really get concerned with. Um, at the same time. You know, having done the same role for 12 years, I mean, there are some great things about it, right? Uh, you really get to see your ideas set into motion, et cetera. But you know, it's not one of those things that needs to be um, overly, I, I guess, romanticized either. Um, you know, I think that marketing and marketing positions change a lot. Uh, I think the role changes with executives. And it's going to be very hard for someone to stay uh, in a CMO role when you know chief executives are are changing at a pace fairly similar to CMOs. They, you know, they last about twelve months longer. And I think one of those things that you get to say is every every CEO gets to change their CMO once, and that's why we're we're a little <laughs> bit uh, uh, shorter in tenure. Um, you know, so all that being said, I mean, I think you recognize with the profession, there's just a certain amount of you know, at different times, companies go through different life cycles. At one point, they might really want someone with branding experience. At another point, they might want someone that has really worked with sales forces. They might uh, really desire PR or change in reputation because they've gone through some sort of reputational crisis. Um, so I think when you get into that job, you just kind of got to expect that, that um, things are going to change, right? So that being said, it's always it's just so important as a CMO to look at yourself as just another C-suite officer. So, you know, some of the things that I, I caution some of our colleagues to is, you know, they ask me questions like, how did you win in the budget conversation? Uh, how do you advocate for marketing in the organization? And, you know, some of that is fine, but at the same time, when, you, when you've got that C in front of your position, you have to take on the responsibility as if you were the CHRO or the CFO, you know, you, you can't be purely an advocate for marketing. You have to be a member of the team, be thinking about how the resources of the entire firm are spent, 
where the highest yield is, and where you can be the most helpful. And um, you know, I think where marketers sometimes get in trouble is that they have ideas or a vision or plan that is somehow divorced from the, the strategy of the firm and the alignment of the whole team. And you know, that's a way to increase your shelf life is to work on those issues. Uh, but at the same time, I think it is completely fair to recognize that there's just a lot of change going on in the business world. There's a lot of changes going on in companies. Uh, these leadership positions aren't necessarily meant to last a long time. Uh, so I'm a bit of an anomaly, uh, but at the same time, I wouldn't overrate that. Do you think that your consulting background, I mean, I know you've also had other client side roles in the past. Yeah. Um, do you think, do you think that helped at all to help you oh, broaden your perspective? Sure. I mean, you know, look, anything you bring into a formula definitely um, can have both positives and negatives, right? And as a consultant, the positive part was, you know, certainly in my first, you know, five years uh, at Aon, um, I didn't really rely on the title or the position or the authority uh, of the role in any way to get things done, right? Um, it, I sold projects, I sold the ideas like I was a consultant, and um, you know, which means that people had to sign up for the project. They had to want to commit and do things. And you know, thank God it was a lot easier because they didn't actually have to write a check, right? Um, but they still had to dedicate their time, their energy. Uh, they had to work on the things marketing was presenting rather than something else that might be in the middle of their desk at that at that time. And um, I, you know, I think that's a, a really important skill set to never never forget and, and very helpful. So Aon is a true global brand, and I'm yeah. curious what you know. What have you learned about managing a global brand um, over the last twelve years? Um, you know, I think I think there's uh, so many different things on, on on so many different levels, right? There's the nuances of how to operate in every specific country, which you know probably could be a book in and of itself. Um, but I think you know, kind of big principles are uh, brands do translate. Uh, they really do translate across different countries and different cultures. Uh, you have to let the local uh, jazz occur. This is a phrase that I like to say, you know, because you know, think about um, you, you give Japan uh, a couple of uh, notes, you give them a, a little bit of line, you give them some sheet music. You have to let them improvise. You have to let them work on what the emotion and the value of the brand is and sometimes execute that in ways that may drive you a little crazy if you're overly emphasizing um, you know, how everything's presented, quarter of inch, what words are used, and et cetera. Um, you know, the essence of brands translates, but it won't always translate in the exact same manner. So what we found was you know, we had to do some really big, exciting things that then local geography could translate. And the stuff that came back when people started to you know, improvise and have fun and add their own uh, views to it was fantastic, whether it was Japan. You know, one of my favorite days was uh, we had three soccer balls. That One started in uh, Australia, one in Cape Town, and another one uh, down at the tip of South America. And they all worked back to our new headquarters in London. And when, when the ball landed in Kenya, at our offices in Kenya, um, you know, they had a, a three-day festival. It was fantastic. And I, I never would have thought of how to use traditional dance to bring to life Aeon's values. They did. 
and without some permission to create that jazz, um, you know, nothing of magnitude would have happened. At the same time, if we hadn't talked to them about how our firm is really meant to address risk, how it's meant to empower people, how it's meant to create economic possibility for folks, how it helps with healthcare, how we feel so strongly that we would want to bring an insurance market into the conversation so the people who provide capital, also you know, community leaders, that's the framework we gave them. And upon that, they made it very, uh, very, very uh, real and local. You know, those are some of the best moments you can have working as a global CMO, right? I mean, that's those are those are just fantastic. So I would say that that is um, uh, one of the of the biggest things, you know, which just happens to do with with brands. The other one is just, you know, we are literally in 120 different countries, and I think understanding how operationally different uh, that can be, even when you know, we we definitely have a recipe for what an, a country looks like. Uh, a lot of companies don't. A lot of companies have pretty ad hoc structures uh, in every country. Uh, we have, uh, you know, really a, a playbook for a country. But even within that playbook, there's just a lot of differences and a lot of different motivations. And you just you can't spend enough time listening. Uh, in any of those uh, situations. And the minute you start to assume that something is being done for a certain reason, that's when you start to get things out of alignment. So I think that communication and listening piece is, is unbelievably important. And the bigger you get, the more important it gets. And unfortunately, it actually becomes more tempting not to because it just takes so much time. <laughs> I'm just curious on the communication front, you know, communicating what the brand essence is. I mean, how, how much, how much of your organization's time is devoted to that? You know, and maybe it was, maybe it, it was a lot in the earlier part of your career there. Uh, you know, actually the first thing we tackled was sales systems. Um, because I just, I felt like we couldn't do anything, uh, in a measurable way if we didn't have sales systems in place and you know ways to really look at uh, return on investment for a lead or what kind of activity it was creating and the impact of marketing programs. So it was actually about five years in that we got into really going big in the, in, on the brand. And you know, that, and it was a, it was an all consuming effort, right? I mean, we worked with uh, a very uh, good uh, brand consulting agency. We, we had uh, round table discussions at, in every country about the brand. Um, you know, we did a lot of things that was about consensus and, and helping people identify with the brand that maybe weren't necessarily technically required to do to get the project done but in the end ended up being really helpful to getting people to feel like they were Aeon, right? It was a great phrase that came out of it. It's I am Aeon. And um, people, people really expressed what that meant to them. Um, and when the brand was launched, I would say that, and, and, and increasingly you see this in really effective uh, organizations and marketing, it was a small group of highly dedicated people who were doing outstanding work. And I think with brand standards and relaunching brands, one of the temptations marketing organizations really face is this 
notion of brand police and enforcing standards. And, you know, the conversation kind of goes to that immediately when you start to talk about these things. And we kept saying to ourselves, and this was kind of the small group that we were working with, which was about five people, including a really, really talented creative director uh, named Eric Saratowski, by the way. He's one of the best in the business, and uh, I've been lucky to work with him for about uh, eight of the 12 years that I've been there. And we said, look, if it's good, people will use it. Fundamentally, we all knew people want good brand material. They want good material that they can be proud of. They want strong images. They want things that resonate. And we just kept going back. If they're not using it, if there's a problem with enforcement, there's a problem with the material. And we just have to be that good that people really want to use it. Now, on the other side, we had CEOs and CFOs in the business units who were completely committed to the value that's created by having a single brand. And so we let them do the enforcement. And that worked out really, really well. That's great. That's a, I love that. I love that. <laughs> if it's good, people will use it. Yeah. Um, that's a big lesson. Um, <laughs> so what is, what is the marketing? You know, I mean, I, I, you have communications as well, I believe. So what does your organization look like across these geographies? Yeah, and, and, and that's another really... You know, good question, right? About marketing organizations, because I think we get there's a couple of splinters that we always are fascinated by, right? One is business unit marketing versus corporate marketing. Um, what I would then call field marketing, which is the stuff that's really close to the sales force, um, versus the things that are very close to global campaigns and advertising and et cetera. Then you've got PR, which tends to be Uh, It can be a world within its own, or it can be within the marketing mix. And then you have internal communications. And you can organize, I think, effective marketing in many different ways. And and we have, uh, in my tenure at Aon, we've we've organized it different ways during that period of time based on what our objectives were. And so at times when, uh, for example, the first task that I mentioned when we were implementing Salesforce.com and doing CRM systems, uh, field marketing we ported directly in, it was, uh, it would have been madness not to be spending 60% of my time with the folks that were using the system and working on the programs. And also probably would have been a real gap not to have the reporting accountability there so that people could be very clear on their goals and objectives. Now, later, when we were doing more um, global marketing and branding, uh, at that time, I had more of a dotted line responsibility for the business units. And the business unit marketers were reporting to their CEOs because they were just hard charging on those plans. Um, And I'd say marketing at the corporate level was providing guardrails to the business unit, but wasn't providing that, that daily management. Uh, similarly, investor relations has reported uh, to me. It's not reported to me. Uh, PR has been um, adjacent. It's been mostly in in the organization. I think you're going to see more of that, um, you know, in the future because of uh, content is such an important part to the uh, marketing mix, and you can't really get away from uh, content and PR being part of uh, you know the, the the marketing mix. But uh, so. I guess what I'm saying is it's a real puzzle piece. I'm not so concerned about structure. I think what's really important is that the structure is aligned with your objectives at that given time. And and you could possibly be more fluid uh, than 
folks might expect. I think there's some sort of sense that um, a real hard-lined, hard-structured organization may give you more ability to get things done. But I, I would say that I'm seeing more of that fall apart, right? So if you look at really uh, top-notch, high-performing organizations right now, uh, a lot of them are based on what I would call the ensemble method. So you know, even if you're at GE and you know, big company, it's, it, it's a series of high-performing teams that deliver projects. And they bring in cross disciplines, uh, they bring in people from different parts of the company to get things done, and it's not the formal hierarchy in the silo that's getting things delivered. It's these cross-functional teams that can you know, gather quickly. And you know, I like it, I think marketers love it too, because it's a little bit more like what you'd see in major motion picture production, where you know, hundreds of people have to come in uh, together quickly, tell a story, have an economic outcome, disband, maybe get together for the next project, maybe not. And uh, I think that's the model we're going to see more of. It seems like that's the model of the, the way the world works now more and more. Um, so it's interesting that, that you guys adopted that type of approach. Yeah, it's a great thing to get comfortable with. I mean, I think you know, a lot of nervousness is about not being comfortable with that model. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, well, what if I have to, you know, work with a different team next time, or I have a different role on that team, uh, um, right. or the story is completely different than any story I've ever told. It's like, well, of course that's how it's going to be. Right. Is there, this kind of going off script a little bit, but is there, is there, you know, one or two things that you think of that make a great team? Sure. So when, when, when I think of great teams, um, I, I think of a real mix of capabilities and skill sets. Uh, the teams that I've been on that have been the most effective, one, everyone is deeply, deeply committed to the idea and the project that we're getting done. I think also structurally there's some uh, truth to the fact that you know, the best team can't get the thing done if, they're, if they don't have the right kind of permission and decision rights and um, executive sponsorship. So that's, that's an important piece, of course. But if you look at the teams themselves, and this is one of the reasons why I love all the work that uh, companies are doing now in diversity and inclusion, because... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You know, obviously gender and race is one form of, uh, or are forms of uh, diversity, but economic background, academic background, the way you solve problems, whether you're an extrovert or introvert, whether you're very technical or very quantitative, these things are, are the real source of diversity. And the best teams have 
you know, folks that represent all these different skill sets, and they come together and they're very respectful of each other. They challenge each other because they, they value the project. It's not necessarily the most polite of cultures, but they, they enjoy the challenging uh, nature of working with people that are really good, and they are there to learn and get something really done. And, uh, I, you know, those are, those are great teams. <laughs> well, so switching gears a little bit, Aeon was, has a huge history of acquisitions, and yeah. you guys made a rather large bet, I think a couple of times, on sports being in your marketing mix. You know, I know you've told this story probably a thousand times at this point, <laughs> but I'd love you to tell it one more you know, in terms of how you came about uh, the partnership with Manchester United, and, and did that, how did that deliver on your expectations? Well, when we when we first did Manchester United, uh, it came up at a really opportune moment for the firm, and uh, it was right when we were having that brand discussion I mentioned earlier. And uh, our CEO, our executive committee across the board, was committed to changing the organization from something where only about thirty percent of the firm was going to market as pure Aon. Um, then there was about another thirty percent that had Aon somewhere in the title. You know, might be called something and then say an Aon company. And then there was a, a huge portion of the company that was going to market as brands that we had acquired. They had never uh, switched over. And we believed that there was a tremendous amount of value that could be unlocked if we could get the firm to act as one. Uh, you know, certainly that would be global presence and brand presence, uh, meaning rather than distributing all our resources across multiple brands that would would struggle to get attention, we could have one brand that would get all the resources. Um, so when we were promoting it in New Zealand, ideally it's kind of helping you, you know, uh, in Indiana because it's the same, uh, the same brand rather than a separate one. But there's also notions of cross-selling rather than just bringing the product or solution that you sold in the previous company, you can bring all of Aon to the, to the client, uh, which meant that you could be much more helpful to clients. Uh, there's also cost structure. Uh, when you take away brand names, it's amazing how quickly folks realize that maybe they have redundant cost structures and they don't need their separate IT organization and their separate finance organization. And so basically we thought we could unlock billions of dollars by getting our company to work as one. And I was really working to, you know, to build a marketing organization that could accomplish that. Again, 120 countries, imagine trying to uh, build a marketing organization, an advertising budget, an advertising campaign uh, that would bring our brand up to a, a stature that people felt like that was what they wanted to rally around. And that was pretty expensive. Uh, to be honest, I mean, you, you, again, just do the math, right? Imagine hiring five people, and then if you gave someone a million dollars per country for advertising, what could you expect out of that in Germany, right? Is that going to be much of a dent? Are you really going to get much of a, um, a brand exposure? So you kind of go, we were lockstead, completely focused on having a global brand at the time. The alternatives for how we might do it were fairly expensive, and had a lot of risk because I, I didn't believe that we would execute well in 120 places simultaneously with right. local advertising campaigns. Then you come along with something like Manchester United, which is one check, a portion of the cost uh, of the other marketing that uh, we were just discussing. Mm -hmm. And it was something that everyone could understand. I mean, the U.S. being 
the exception being that you know right. soccer was a little bit more exotic there but uh you know this is a conversation we can have in japan again and south africa and australia new zealand everyone gets uh the notion of uh, soccer slash football and so these things added up we had a couple of other benefits one was we were very close to aig who was you know in a really unfortunate uh, situation at the time, and uh, they had had the shirt sponsorship of Manchester United, and so we had a really intimate knowledge of how uh, successful it had been for them. You know, as soon as AIG started to not be able to do it, I was getting calls from field reps in places uh, all over the world saying, "Hey, you know, if they can't do that, we should really look at it." Um, which is the kind of field validation that you rarely get when you are uh, making a big brand sports marketing type decision. Right. So for me, it was really counterintuitive uh, because I had no familiarity with the sport. I, I didn't have an inclination to believe in sports marketing. I think uh, I'd been much more uh, about campaign-led and, and very measured brand marketing, and sports marketing just seemed to be in this big world of um, almost unstructured return uh, and a bit of a boondoggle. Uh, but as I did a really rigorous study of it and you know, did the ROI, it was pretty clear that it was the best answer for us. Uh, and and the only reason not to do it was that it was uh, sports <laughs> marketing. might be considered a little bit uh, less structured, uh, but I, you could just see uh, how it would work. So the good news is uh, it's been phenomenal for us, and uh, you know all the quantitative expectations and goals that we set uh, were definitely matched. And I've also become a fan of sports marketing, and I think one of the things that we're learning right now is how the brain actually behaves and absorbs new information and moves your brand from one part of the brain to the other. And sport carries that very quickly. It brings your brand into the thought process in a different way than you know uh, articles or content does. It has an emotional experience with it, and that's the the magic ingredient that helps you reposition where you're filed away in the brain of your client or customer. And you know, without emotion, you stay in the exact same place. This is just brain science. It's just technical stuff. That mm-hmm. it's actually um, you know the emotional stir that allows uh, the brain to think about you in a different way. And uh, that's why great creative is always so important, and sport really uh, triggers that. So yeah. uh, it's a, you know, it, it, it is as complex as the organization, right, how you end up using a sponsorship like Manchester United. But it was fantastic for us to have one thing we could use everywhere uh, in the world. Small team, centrally located uh, could orchestrate programs in 120 countries as a result. So, I mean, we had seven people running that program globally. Well, and as you said before, if it's good, people will use it. So I think, I think he delivered on that with Manchester United. It, and, and that is more jazz, right? Um, right. You know, in in Colombia or Brazil, um, you know, some of the things that they've done with the program have been amazing with their clients. So now you you guys have continued to acquire. I, I don't know if it's slowed down at all, but but I'm curious. You know, more importantly, how can CMOs contribute to that integration or acculturation process? You know, in in the M and A. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I think it's one of the more valuable uh, things that we do. Um, I was at a meeting of CMOs recently, and I asked for a show of hands, 
about midway through the conversation, just, just out of curiosity, how many of you have been through a merger and acquisition um, in the last uh, five years? And 80% of the room raised their hand. And you know, it is a consistently underestimated part of our marketing mix is how to deal with mergers and acquisitions. And, and you know, just the, the sheer law of numbers means that quite often you're not going to be the brand that is going to win out in that, right? Um, you know, there are a few brands that are doing the acquiring and they, they swallow up a lot of brands. So, uh, you know, people have to deal with this and, and, and really understand it uh, quite frequently. Um, I, I think what marketers do and what marketing can do is be very aware of the fact that we're, we are giving people the source sense of identity for the firm. We're, we're, when they walk in the door and they think about what does their company stand for, the marketing organization is, is helping them understand that. Um, you know, if you went to the extreme, you could say it's telling them what to think about the firm. Um, if they're doing it credibly, it works. If they're doing it in a way that's disingenuous and not credible, it won't work. But right. marketers always have to understand that they're giving people the glue. They're giving them the culture. They're giving them what they stand for. And uh, good CEOs, I think, in uh, M&A situations really understand that, and they lean heavily on their marketing teams. I see that over and over. So I want to transition and talk a little bit more just about you, kind of stepping back from the job and what you've been working on. And I love to ask this question, which is, you know, is what moment in your life do you believe defines who you are today? Very deep. Wow. I think it says um, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, um, I, I, you know, I cannot, and it probably uh, says a lot about me too, um, <laughs> that I could not uh, think of one moment. Um, I can think of things that have mattered. I can think of uh, accomplishments that have been very rewarding. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, for example, my family moving to Seattle. Um, as a kid, and uh, my dad, having been you know, you know, a real Midwestern guy, and us going out uh, to a place and, and, and living there from 1970 to 1980, uh, a time when brands like uh, Starbucks and Microsoft were just getting started, and a, a culture that was going to give birth to Costco and Amazon and Nike and you know I I I think I learned a great deal uh, about marketing, for example, just through the culture that was around me at that time. And then you know, look, there are things that define us that are oftentimes you know, the hardest things that we go through, mm -hmm. and um, you know, the times when we're tested and we really uh, find out who we are. Um, and you know, I've had a series of those in my life, and I, I think you just come come back to the fact that uh, we we are evolving. I mean, I hope that there is no single moment in my life that can define me because I'm 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 absorbing those experiences and you know hopefully getting better and and, and moving on and um, meeting great people and you know accomplishing great things uh, collectively. Right? That's that's kind of the the hope in a in a in a real positive community. So that's a really hard question for me to answer. I'm sorry, Ellen. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, I mean, if I, if I play armchair armchair psychologist here, I, 
there's something that comes through in, in, in all of what you've talked about. And I think it might be highlighted in that move that you described, which is kind of your embrace of fluidity or embrace of yeah. change. So for what it's worth, uh, you know, maybe, 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 maybe your moment is, is a series of moments, like you said. So it's pretty interesting. Let's see this. I got some good insight today as always. Thank you. so so the next question also a little personal but you know what motivates you what makes you get up in the morning um i really i i you know i do wake up curious i always have the thing i want to find out that day i love working with people i've had times where i've had really extended private working you know projects where you were literally in a cubicle for 12 hours and, you know, very research-based. And I can do that, but I can't do it for more than three months um, because I really, really like working with, with people. And I think those interactions motivate me. And, you know, watching people get together and try to accomplish something together, I just, I get a lot of energy from that. I find that marketers are kind of students of marketing um can we, yeah at times we kind of look at it all around us you know so i don't know if it, are there any brands or, or companies or even causes that you think other people should be taking notice of or, or have made you kind of stop and, and and notice what they're doing well yeah no i i think you're right i mean uh, the folks that are really committed to this profession uh, <laughs> really our students, right? We're, we're, we're looking at everything. We look at advertisements. We look at the way things um, happen. You know, if we're doing a 5K race, you know, what's, what's on the T-shirt? What, how's the bag registration go? You know, I mean, just everything all the time. And uh, I'm, I'm actually really working on studying some brands, and I think some brands that really grew out of the, nor- uh, out of the Northwest in that uh, period that I mentioned from 1970 to 1995, and what are the cornerstones of growth mentality? And, you know, of course, the great one that was uh, founded in 95 that came out of that 25-year period um, is Amazon. And I just can't learn enough about Amazon, uh, you know. And I love the fact that they say that they don't market, when in fact <laughs> everything they're doing is marketing. And right. uh, you know, they're not advertising in any traditional way. But in a world where you can kind of circumnavigate the TV and magazines and everything, and just have a direct experience with your customer, uh, that's your marketing. And I think anyone not studying. Amazon right now in depth uh, is really missing a trick. Uh, Salesforce.com would be another one, just great companies. Um, and then looking at how do, how do companies like IBM, GE, Coca-Cola reinvent themselves over and over and over. And I think it is good to look at the leaders uh, to figure out things that you might want to emulate. As well as, I think, you know, look, Alan, you and I learned a lot from Bell and Howell, right? I mean, at one yeah, time, it was one of the top companies in the world. It was extraordinarily well positioned. And I think a, oh, I think, you know, a management philosophy that was going for, you know, kind of breaking up and making the most out of its parts mm-hmm. rather than a long-term focus on, on its brand, you know, obviously had an impact. And right. Uh, that's something that we really can learn from. No, I agree. I totally agree. So last question, uh, you have to get out your crystal ball. Um, okay. and, and I want to, I'm curious what you think the future of marketing holds. 
you know, I, I think that marketing is going to increasingly become more about the problem solving in people's minds and the way that the problem is solved. So, you know, traditionally when we talked about marketing, we went straight to advertising because, you know, most of the problems marketers were asked to solve had to do with publicity, promotion, people being familiar with. Then we got a little bit into marketing strategy and we started to talk about pricing and more strategy you know, frameworks and, and working with things of that nature and customer information. I think that where we are now is particularly because everything's so transparent in the world and you can't hide. These channels are becoming less the focus of marketing and the problem that you're solving is becoming more the focus. So, you know, a company at a certain time might need leads. A company at a certain time might need branding work. Uh, another time it might need reputational work uh, because it's having problems in the community or with regulators or something like that. Um, and these things are going to be, you know, you can imagine any year in a given decade, well, this might be a strong brand year, a low lead gen year, or this might be an all lead gen year, no brand year. Um, we may need to be focused on reputational issues. As that mix changes, all your methods and all the things that you do and all the things that your team organizes around can change. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that we're going to see more conversation about the challenges we're facing rather than a focus which we've had traditionally, which has been on great advertising, great PR, you know, great lead gen, because we've been focused on the channels versus the problems that we're solving. That's great. That's great. Well, Phil, thank you so much for coming on. It's been enlightening. <laughs> well, it's always great to talk about the profession. You don't oftentimes get to step out and uh, you know, kind of take a view on the big picture. So uh, I always enjoy uh, whenever we get together uh, chatting with you about it. So uh, thank you. Marketing Today is brought to you by Atomic. Atomic focuses on unleashing the growth potential for clients we serve. Atomic is a strategic consultancy specializing in business, marketing, brand, and innovation. Our singular goal is to help you accelerate your efforts with the right mix of expertise, analysis, and creativity. Check us out at atomic.com. A-T-O-M-C-K.com. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with project management by Sarah Williams, audio production by Aaron Campbell, writing and editing by Kevin Greeley, social media support by Megan Woods, art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. We love to hear from listeners at info at atomic, A-T-O-M-C-K dot com. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 